Forget frequently asked questions. Common sense. Common knowledge. Or Google. How about advice from a real genius? 95% of people in any profession are good enough to be qualified and licensed. 5% go above and beyond. They become very good at what they do. But only 0.1% are real geniuses. Richard Jacobs has made it his life's mission to find them for you. He hunts down and interviews geniuses in every field. Sleep science, cancer, stem cells, ketogenic diets, and more. Here come the geniuses. This is the Finding Genius Podcast with Richard Jacobs. Before we begin, a note from our sponsor. I'm Richard Jacobs, Executive Director of the nonprofit Finding Genius Foundation and host of the Finding Genius Podcast. In late 2016, I was rear-ended at 65 miles an hour by a truck on the highway, which sent me off-road into a ditch. The impact of the collision gave me a concussion and other injuries. At the hospital, a CT scan showed that I had thyroid nodules, which turned out to be cancer. It was then, when I had a biopsy in my neck, that I realized, even if I was a millionaire, I wouldn't want a second or a third biopsy due to the pain and the invasiveness of it. And appointments at that time for thyroid experts were three to six months out. And I was worried about dying now, even if that was irrational. So because of this, I've decided to raise money to conduct a literature review on steroids, on the causes of anxiety and depression, a condition that affects well over 50 million people in the United States and hundreds of millions worldwide. Our goal is to create a codex, a guide, that reveals all possible treatments for anxiety and depression for people that live with the condition or for loved ones that have it, as my wife and my son do. To find out more about our fundraiser, visit FindingGeniusFoundation.org and click on Current Initiatives. And now, to our guest. Hello, this is Richard Jacobs with the Finding Genius podcast, now part of the Finding Genius Foundation. A quick note about the foundation. We've embarked on a massive literature review project to uncover as many treatments for anxiety and depression as we can. Uh, we call it the Anxiety and Depression Codex. So to find out more about the effort, go to FindingGeniusFoundation.org. And today, my guest is uh, Hilary Jacobs Hendel. She's a psychotherapist, an author, a blogger, and a speaker. We're going to talk about uh, her award-winning book called It's Not Always Depression, Working the Change Triangle to Listen to the Body, Discover Core Emotions, and Connect to Your Authentic Self. It was published by Random House in Penguin, uh, UK, in 2018. So Hilary, thanks for coming. Thanks, Richard. I'm delighted to be here. Okay, well, yeah, let's start with that just briefly. What is AEDP? AEDP is the kind of therapy that I have really gravitated to. It stands for experiential, uh, it stands for, well, the A is for accelerated experiential dynamic psychotherapy. And it, Diana Fosha, who developed it, who's a genius, really took the best of the best of current neuroscience and attachment theory and theories of how people transform and how the brain heals and integrates and put it into a model that I just just think is the best. And I was trained in many models, including as originally as a psychoanal- uh, psychoanalyst. And it's, a, it's great because it's integrative too. So it's all woven into the work that I do with the change triangle and the book. Oh, so before we get into specifically the book, would you mind telling me a few facets of the AEDP program? Like what's unique about it or powerful that you've used? Yeah. I mean, what's unique about it is that it's really a couple of ideas. It's, you know, what the reason that I turned to it is I was treating patients in a conventional way with psychoanalysis and more cognitive uh, type of thinking like cognitive behavioral therapy. 
both cognitive behavioral therapy and psychoanalysis are left brain insight oriented ways of working. So people talk and you give, you help them reflect on the meaning. And so they understand themselves better, which is fantastic. But what ADP brought is I was seeing patients and most people had some early traumatic wounds within the family. Uh, There's many, many things that cause symptoms of trauma, like anxiety and depression, that people don't really think about. These are sort of invisible traumas and like emotional neglect or like not being the right fit for your family, or I would guess sort of more overt traumas or repeated bullying. And But just a sense that something isn't feeling right. And the people that were coming in where I was doing psychoanalysis and kind of trained to do less talking and not be directive and not focus necessarily on feelings and emotions as body-based survival programs, which is uh, the whole kind of way that we, we lean into emotions in the work that I started doing first by learning AEDP and then really wanting to bring emotion education to the public. So the difference is that AEDP is a healing modality and healing is a word that, you know, brings up different things for different people. My, um, my father was a psychiatrist. We were from New York city and we didn't use the word healing back in those days because it was sort of too like woo woo California, you know, just, it wasn't like science. And the, the truth is that there's so much science that we've learned about how emotions work in the body. They're really body-based programs that help us move in, in ways that are uh, beneficial for survival and for thriving. Like, for example, mm. fear makes us run. Anger makes us, uh, our physical body, want to fight. Sadness makes us kind of fold in on ourselves and need to be comforted. That each of these core emotion which are sort of, you can think of them as separate software programs in your mind, has a reason for being there. And in our society, which is very dysfunctional, we are taught to avoid and bury and suppress emotions. And this is a whole other, it's a 180 on leaning into emotions to using them as important communications that have to be experienced, honored, validated, and then listened to as part of a whole person and of thinking and feeling and then using those that those two bits of information from ourselves figuring out how to make our next move in life how to thrive and how to meet the challenges of life so i can't say enough well, positive words about aedp there and it's grounded in science yeah, and it, very important right in the, in the beginning you mentioned that uh, childhood traumas will manifest themselves i, I don't know if you said how but how have you observed that people's childhood traumas manifest themselves later on in their lives? Anxiety and depression. I mean, it's the things that we're taught in our society. Oh, you're anxious or you're depressed. Okay. So take a pill, right? That's the end of the story. Here's your diagnosis. And truthfully, most anxiety and depression, everything has a biological and nature nurture component to it, but our experiences dictate a large part of our emotional health and Anxiety and depression, I teach people and in my work and in the educational classes I give and in the book that the anxiety and depression is a symptom of underlying buried core emotions and that when we can 
teach people how to approach ourselves in safe and gentle ways and compassionate ways where we can access these emotions as sensations in the body and learn ways to move through them, we re-regulate the nervous system, we integrate left and right brain, we integrate body and mind and heart and brain, and the symptoms go away or certainly lessen. Well, what does that mean? Do you do you work with someone to relive a certain experience or, you know, how does the therapy work for, you know, let's say a childhood trauma that affects somebody? Great question. Well, most people come in and they don't think of themselves as first of of having survived childhood trauma. They come in because they feel bad, right? So they either feel depressed or they are irritable or they're anxious. And the way that the, the work is, is if let's say you came in and um, you were talking about your anxiety and you were, most people launch into a story, right? Because we're, we're sort of trained that therapy, you kind of launch into a narrative and I would listen, but I would also say, hey, Richard, I'm so interested in everything that you have to say. And I'm wondering if we could also just really kind of slow way down together so that you could notice what you're experiencing as you're sharing this story of, let's say, let's say it just starts with a relationship problem. And I'm so depressed because I feel so disconnected from my partner, or I hate my job. We're going to, I'm going to help you slow down so that you can begin to notice what's happening below the neck. Now, some people right away take to this like a duck to water. Other people retreat or change the subject or go up into their head. And this this model, this guide that I teach to the public called the change triangle is really where one is located at any given moment uh, in their lives vis-a-vis what they're experiencing in their mind and body from an emotional health perspective. Yeah, what are some examples of sensations that people have felt? Again, that wasn't in their head when you asked them to contemplate yeah. Their body, what are they, what are some examples of what someone has told you? Before we continue, I've been personally funding the Finding Genius podcast for four and a half years now, which has led to 2,700 plus interviews of clinicians, researchers, scientists, CEOs, and other amazing people who are working to advance science and improve our lives and our world. Even though this podcast gets 100,000 plus downloads a month, we need your help to reach hundreds of thousands more worldwide. Please visit FindingGeniusPodcast.com and click on support us. We have three levels of membership from 10 to $49 a month, including perks such as the ability to see ahead in our interview calendar and ask questions of upcoming guests, transcripts of podcasts you're interested in, the ability to request specific topics or guests, and more. Visit FindingGeniusPodcast.com and click support us today. Now back to the show. Yeah. So for example, so if we just stay with us, the idea that I slowed you down and I asked you what you were feeling and and you might say, well, I'm experiencing anxiety right now. And I would ask you how, what's happening in your body that's let, that lets you know that you have anxiety. So some of the things that people report are a tightness in the chest. So I would, what I would ask you is very specifically, if we slow way down, and I would explain that because the body takes much longer to make itself known than those thoughts that come to us so quickly. And if you just scan gently your body from head to toe, what do you notice inside that lets you know that you're having anxiety? So you might say you feel a jittery, like a vibration all over. You might say that you feel a pit in your stomach or not in your stomach. You might have your, your leg might be jiggling and you might say, well, there it is right there. You might feel short of breath. 
You might feel dizzy. There's many, many ways that anxiety manifests in the body. And it doesn't, there's no right way when we're talking about emotions. It's really just validating your experience. And then once you let me know, oh, maybe you felt some tightness and constriction in your chest, I would have you, again, making sure we're very slowed down. And with a compassionate, curious stance, I would ask if you just focused on that tension in your chest for maybe 10 or 15 or 20 seconds, we just want to notice the effect of the attention on that. And that's the big counterintuitive part about this work, because when we focus on the sensations of anxiety, for example, 90% of the time, it's going to calm down the anxiety. And it's like a major aha moment for people, because in our society, we intuitively, we move away from it, we go up into our head, and we get very thinky, to ruminate or obsess. And the whole that's what I was going to say, right, is, is, um, you said some people shy away before they start to feel but once they do feel stuff, do they go, Oh, that's weird. I feel this or I feel that or what oh kind of comments do you get when they feel stuff? That's such a great question. It in many ways it blows their mind because they end up feeling better. I can do a session and people can be transformed at the end of the session, you know, theoretically. Because what, what we're doing is if it's a, if it's if there's not a lot of trauma and someone has felt a lot of anxiety and it's just because they have never validated their emotions by the end of the session, not only are they going to feel more calm, they're going to feel more normal, and they're going to have now a tool and strategy for the rest of their life to get curious about what emotions are underlying the anxiety. So do you remember, and for people listening, they should probably, if you're near a computer, Google the change triangle so you can see this map that it shows that it's an upside down inverted triangle and it's really diagramming at the top of the change triangle we is where we go into our head and we go we lift away from our core emotions and we become anxious and um and symptomatic and avoidant of our emotions and all the kind of symptoms that people come in with are at the at the top of this triangle and the goal is to get down to the bottom corner where these core emotions that are these crucial, unique survival programs of, and let me tell you what they are, they're sadness, anger, fear, disgust, joy, excitement, and sexual excitement. And that when we can feel these feelings with minimal amounts of avoidance, uh, usually we use these inhibitory emotions to avoid our core emotions. And the inhibitory emotions are anxiety and guilt and shame. They're on the top right-hand corner of the triangle. And on the top left-hand yeah. corner are all those defenses we use to avoid those painful feelings and the mix of the core emotions. If you like this podcast, please click the link in the description to subscribe and review us on iTunes. Quick question here. I mean, if, if I'm anxious and I have a tightness in my chest, or let's say I have a feeling of doom, Mm-hmm. I don't really want to embrace it. It seems like that would make it a lot worse. So like, you know, if I feel like I can't catch my breath, how does someone embrace that without panicking? Because it's a real negative feeling. Are you saying with a therapist or on their own? Yeah, with it. Well, first with a therapist, and then if they try to do it on their own later. But even with a therapist, like, you know, if I sat with you and, and again, I felt one of these terrible feelings and you said like, I don't know what you'd say, embrace it or something, but no, I would, I, never I would think like, it. I'll tell you what I said. You're asking a perfect question. So this gets back to what of the components of AEDP. So besides teaching people about emotions and helping people process emotions, AEDP integrates attachment theory. 
with that. And attachment theory is the theory of how people feel safe and connected. So my job initially as the therapist, if someone is feeling huge amounts of anxiety or a feeling of doom, is I'm using myself along with various techniques like grounding and breathing, but mostly by myself, if some myself, if if someone is very upset where I am going to help them. The first, the most important thing in therapy is that somebody feel a sense of safety that they get to decide. In other words, I don't say to someone, this is a safe place. What I say is you're the expert on you. I'm the expert on uh, ways to feel better. And we're going to collaborate together on how to help you. And so we're going to, if someone is upset, we're going to collaborate together on how they can feel better. But there's some general scientific sort of go-tos that I have. So the first thing is always to slow down. I might ask, do you feel me with you? And if we really slow down, can you tell me what you're experiencing right now that is overwhelming or painful? And what, what might you say? Those when the tissue box comes out, right? People either, I guess, melt down and, and tell you things or they don't, right? Right. Well, so one thing they might say is, I just feel, you know, I just feel overwhelmed and my anxiety is through the roof. And in which case I would say, okay, we're just going to stop what we're doing. Just want you to feel your feet on the ground. Do you feel me with you? And then I might do some, some, these are come from the, the trauma literature. You can have people breathe a little bit, but some people, the breathing doesn't help. I might have them just come into the present moment by noticing three colors in the room, three sounds in the room, three textures in the room. The idea is that if you bring someone into the present moment, where they are actually safe because nothing really dangerous is happening there with somebody who wants to help them and who has a lot of experience helping people. And that, that, you know, I've never been with anyone that the techniques that I know didn't help someone feel calmer. Then once they feel better, we can go back and say, so if we go, if we rewind and go in slow motion, what just happened that just got your anxiety through the roof? So that's one thing that we could do. Another thing, like you said, is they, as I slow them down, and because that's calming to anxiety, the theory and in practice, when you, when you calm the anxiety, you're going to give somebody more access to the underlying core emotions that they've been burying for many, many reasons. We learn to bury emotions in our family, and we learn to bury emotions from societal messages, like men get a raw deal, where they're told that it's not manly to feel scared, it's not manly to feel sad, and so they learn to bury sadness and fear, and um, and so they stay buried and they create anxiety. Or we may just be overwhelmed by our emotions because we were left alone with them too much when we were younger, and so we just learn to survive by burying our emotions. So if we slow down in therapy enough and make it safe for somebody to share the there's a wisdom that happens beyond consciousness that a sad part may know that this is the place that they can feel their sadness and yes they may start to feel sad and then it's my job to make the the experience of the sadness a good experience like we don't want to re-traumatize bad experiences we're trying to provide a new and better experience and that's again when when I, through the experience and the teaching of helping someone learn to experience a core emotion, which is like a wave-like experience that doesn't last usually more than two or three minutes. And somebody may just need to have a good cry 
and I'll kind of help them stay with it and not get too ang- too anxious by validating it and affirming and telling, keeping them slowed down and reassuring them that this is normal and just let whatever needs to happen, happen. And then when it's done, the wave is over. Then we try to, then there's usually a narrative after that. That's, that's coming from this, this is what's happened to me and it's been terrible. And, so what, what do you notice like without this therapy do people kind of, I don't know, do they, do their emotions come by them faster and faster and faster when they're in an anxious or depressed mode? And it just like, you know, you're slowing them down, but does that mean the opposite tendency for people is to speed up to the point where they're like, ah, they freak out? That's exactly right. So before they come to therapy, they've spent their whole life. It's almost like a pressure cooker. So these core emotions get triggered by the environment, right? That's why we they've developed in mammals for over 100,000 years of evolution is that if we didn't, emotions are programs to make us react very fast so that if there's something threatening like a, a wild animal that comes into the room, if we had to first notice it and then think, oh, there's a wild animal here and then I better run, we'd be dead. So evolution in the limbic system of the brain that's not under conscious control developed these rapid programs where I can pick up something with my vision, my hearing, my sense of touch, the five senses, pick up information from the environment. And then if something is dangerous or interesting in a good way, it will trigger these one or two or three or all the emotions. We can have many emotions triggered at the same time in the middle of the brain. There's no conscious control yet. So from the middle of the brain, let's say sadness or let's say fear is triggered. Fear will then automatically trigger the lower parts of the brain and the vagus nerve to activate all the organs in the body to ready it for running, meaning the blood will be diverted to the heart and the lungs away from the digestive system. Blood vessels in the legs for running will expand to put more blood there. And it's a whole automatic system for survival. It's only after that we've run to safety that our thinking brain can now kind of notice what's happening in the body somewhat automatically. If we were taught these skills by our parents, you know, it's parents that kind of help us learn what our emotions are. And some people can't do this, but it's a process of interoception, noticing the feelings in the body that let us know, oh my God, that was scary. I've just been in a fearful state. And it's the same with anger and sadness that they get triggered, they change the body first, and then we know we've had the emotion. If we block that whole process, we not only do we lose that important information for how the environment is affecting us so that we can make constructive changes and, and navigate life better, but we, when we push them down, the symptom of pushed chronically buried emotions is anxiety, depression, personality disorders, arrogance, like addiction, workaholism, all these things that are in the defense corner of the triangle. Question here. So if I, if I have traumas from my childhood, um, does that tend to make me react either overreact or act in a strange way when I, I encounter certain problems that somehow link to, you know, what happened to me in childhood? Does that happen with people? And then the person that is trying to relate to that person is like, what the heck's going on? Why are they acting this way? Like, do you, do you see that? Absolutely. And we all, I really have come to think we have all have traumas from our childhood, just from surviving childhood. And in AEDP, we define trauma as having overwhelming emotions in a given moment with not enough support. So that if we, if we begin to define trauma as that, 
we all have been there when we were kids. No parent is perfect. And what happens is when we are overwhelmed, the parts of the brain that uh, have had these experiences, because our brain wires with experience and the brain is designed to remember bad experiences. So let's say I'm a little boy and I, somebody hurt my feelings, you know, I'm five years old and I cry to my father and my father says, don't be such a sissy, man up. And now I'm not only am I crying, but my father humiliated me and put me into a state of shame, which feels so excruciatingly painful in the body and the mind that the, that the, the brain will remember it. And now I have this neural network that will be triggered from then on forward when anybody perhaps humiliates me and it might send me into a rage. It might take me back in time where I think my boss is my father. You know, what it does is this is the, we develop a lens from our experiences and that lens can be problematic. The more trauma we have, the more distorted that lens is for both reason, scientific reasons where we're being triggered. So we remember but as we get older, these, these, these defenses, which were actually genius and protective defenses that helped us when we were in childhood, when we now do a cost-benefit analysis as, as adults, they get in our way. And so it, be, it benefits us to work this change triangle to, to overcome our traumas, to rework the neuroplasticity in the brain so that we have a more of an integrated brain and we understand our traumas and we understand our triggers. So we're not acting from them. We are, we are able to notice them, process the emotions, and then engage in the present moment with a fresh perspective through positive communication with our loved ones and our, and our colleagues and whatnot. How do you know what to start with? Do you, do you guide the person and say, like, what are you feeling today? Or do you say, let's go back to, you know, your early childhood or let's go back to this. And uh, do you guide what you're going to have them think about? I let the, the, the client come in and see where they are. So many of my sessions, I actually start with grounding and breathing for about five minutes. It's like a little kind of way to kind of get more comfortable and calm. And part of that is so that they can reflect on what's happening in the present moment. So something like we'll do a few six deep belly breaths and all the instructions for this I have on my the resources on my website so people can learn how to do this. But, you know, we'll, let's say feel your feet on the ground and I teach them how to deep belly breathe to because that's a skill you need for working with emotions and for calming. And then I'll say, so let's just tune in now. If you make a lot of room for you and you don't judge anything happening inside you and you kind of approach yourself with compassion and curiosity, what thoughts do you notice now as we begin? What emotions are coming up as we begin? What physical sensations are coming up? And, you know, again, we're slowed down. And then I say, say at the end, and when you're ready, you can share what feels right and we'll continue. And that way somebody can either share what they where they are in the present moment, and that often begins the session, or they share where they are and they tell me what they want to talk about, or they share where they are. And I say, well, you know, also last time we talked about this and we had a pretty deep, big session. Did you think about that? Did anything come up during the week? So it could be any number of ways but it all is making sense in the context of helping somebody be with the emotions that need to be processed so that they integrate the brain and regulate their nervous system for lifelong well-being and have practical strategies mm -hmm. for living.
But are there, um, I don't know, are there places that you have to take people regardless of what they want to talk about? And do you weave it into certain sessions or it's, it works even if you just let the, the patient just completely guide the whole experience? Yeah, because in AEDP, we really believe that there is a, an, an, innate, an innate force for healing, that we trust the client that they're going to do the work that they need to do. Now, if I know someone is very avoidant, let's say, for example, that they say that they want a relationship, and yet they never talk about the problems in relationships, they never talk about their feelings when they start dating, they just break up with someone. After a while, I may say, you know, I I need to express my dilemma, that I know we're avoiding this topic. And on the one hand, I want to respect where you are. And on the other hand, I don't really want to, I don't want us to collude in avoiding together. And I think if we're going to avoid a topic, let's at least understand why we're avoiding it. And then someone might say, well, I'm afraid to talk about it. I'm afraid to re-traumatize myself. I'm afraid I'm going to lose control in the session, or it just brings up such a bad feeling that I can't stand it. And then that's where our, our, that's where the work would then begin. I'm, I want people to feel like they are in control because that's the most important thing. But if you talk to people reasonably and use common sense, they'll, they'll, they say, yeah, you're right. And I'm just not ready. Um, Or you're right. How do we do that in a way that feels safe? And then I offer my ideas and I ask how that feels and what they think about that. And so it's a real collaboration and people do know what's right for them. And I trust the people I work with. So how do you get someone to re-experience a trauma without traumatizing them? How do you shield them, but let them go through it somehow? Yeah. So I, you don't necessarily have to have someone re-experience a trauma. You can really do it in, in many different ways. And in fact, if someone just wants to launch into a trauma, I'm more apt to put on the brakes as, as a sort of feeling protective over them and wanting to make sure and understand, you know, when they've talked about this before, what's happened. But the way you do process traumas is through this idea of dual attention, that the person has to have the capacity, which could take weeks, months, or years for us to do the setup with stabilizing their nervous system. But what we want to be able to do is develop a capacity in the patient to have dual attention. They have to be able to have one foot in the present and know that they are safe with me as we have another foot in the past so that we can, so they can be with the both attentions at the same time, because what you don't want is for someone to then be triggered into a flashback where they think the trauma is happening right now. But I guess definitely there's ways for people to what bite off a few crumbs of the trauma without jumping back into it, or like, like do you approach it in a circumspect way or yes, I don't know, what are, what are some of the techniques to do this? Yeah. So one technique is if there was some one catastrophic trauma that someone has been through or just, you know, major abuse, uh, physical abuse, sexual abuse, and they're in the room with me now, they have survived. So we can begin with the idea that of really just beginning with that they have survived the trauma. And what is it like that they have such resilience that they were able to survive their childhoods or to survive this experience and what feelings does it bring up in them that they could do that. And we, so we may be starting with pride in the self and relief and calm and joy and um, all sorts of reassurance and validation and build up a capacity for those for, you know, starting with the, with the end in a way that they're okay. And then we can also teach different safety measures for 
how to calm down when they start to feel anxious. So let's say on a, we can feel anxiety from, this is what I'll tell a client, from zero where you're totally calm to 10, um, where it's like the worst anxiety you've ever had. When we're working together, we want to make sure that they stay below a five. So we're going to track together moment to moment as we're working. And that's why we go slow. And that's why ADP therapists are trained to notice not only what a person says, but about 70% of communication is nonverbal. So I'm going to be watching their facial expressions, their body posture, and I'm well-trained so that I can see if somebody's shooting up into anxiety. And then we just stop, calm down the anxiety with those techniques I talked about earlier. And when someone feels calmer, we go back to the moment that was upsetting and it's called pendulating. I show it in the book in, in the seven stories. I don't know if you had a chance to read them, but I show an example of this in the first story about Fran, who had a major trauma of losing her parents when she was a teenager. And she couldn't be with her grief because she learned to bury it so deeply. So when we were trying to get to the grief, um, she would jump into a panic attack. And through this process of slowly pendulating back and forth as her anxiety rose, calming it, going back to the um, the sad feelings, she was able to fully express the grief and um, rewire her brain so that she could have relationships and she felt better and less aloneness and all sorts of good things happened. So it sounds like the slowing down might be the, I don't know, the critical like anchor, uh, what I call it, technique you know, yeah. to help people. It's just slowing everything down. Slowing everything down is such a key when it comes to emotions and when it comes to well-being And I was just um, editing a a blog that I wrote about slowing down. And it doesn't mean you have to be slow throughout your day, but even one or two or three times to just take five minutes and to slow down and just to validate what you're experiencing once you learn Mm. tools and tips so that it feels safe to do so um, is hugely helpful. But you're absolutely right, Richard. Slowing down when you're working with trauma and emotions is a huge key to keeping somebody regulated. Yeah, you're right. Because one thing I see is speed escalates things. It doesn't give people time to process in a way that, you know, like I would think when things are fast, you're going to misunderstand what someone's saying or meaning more likely, you know, than not. And again, speed just seems to lead to escalation. Absolutely right. And when we get anxious, we speed up. And when we get ang- ang- angry, we speed up. All Nothing good happens then that it's really put and it's it's hard work, this emotion stuff, because you have to pull against every bone in your body wanting to speed up and like force yourself to kind of with these techniques that I teach people in the emotions education 101 class and in the book techniques to slow down and then what to do, because the, one of the reasons people stay so sped up is that it helps them block their emotional experience. Um, Like holding your breath helps block emotional experience. Being tense in your muscles helps block emotional experience. So there's all these things we do to block emotional experience because we're afraid of emotions. And then it's a negative feedback loop because when we bury emotions, we speed up and it's this whole negative feedback loop of speeding up and feeling anxious and then ultimately depressed when we sort of tip that scale of too much stress and the serotonin stops being produced enough in our brain and we start to develop symptoms of, um, of, uh, of depression and other kind of chronic stress syndromes in our body. Is this, is this um, also a technique that you, you tell your patients, like, you know, when you're out there and you're dealing with people and a situation comes up that seems like it's going the wrong way, do you tell them 
to slow it down and how to slow it down? Like what can they do out in the street with their interactions to help themselves? Absolutely. Absolutely. And it's the same stuff that we do in the, um, in, in the sessions. It's, it's largely grounding and breathing. It's taking a break. It's visual imagery. Another thing that I failed to mention with trauma treatment is this idea of having these um, visual imagery, visual images that can conjure up um, calm, like where a person feels most peaceful, like at the beach or the mountains, or certain mantras that they can say to themselves, or certain sounds, or concocting certain protective characters, real or imagined, um, which comes from EMDR, which is a type of trauma therapy. So I integrate a bunch of different mo- modalities, somatic experiencing, and integrate it all into ADP for a very comprehensive way to approach trauma and the symptoms of trauma like anxiety and depression. And my latest passion is really bringing that out to the public because I developed this pet peeve that why should only therapists and their patients know how to work with emotions? It's really something we should all be getting in high school because when I learned this triangle, the first time I ever saw it at a conference, it it transformed my mental health. I had thought that I was just an anxious person and I just thought I was like, like an irritable person at times that got angry. And then when I understood that I had all these feelings underneath that I never knew what they were for and what they did and that I just avoided them, it was, it was completely transformational and set the stage for a lifetime of well-being now almost um, uh, 20 years later. And I had gone through two major depressions and I never had another depression after I started working this change triangle. Like, yeah, no, that's fantastic. So it really, it's, it's, uh, I can't, it's, it's just a shame that this is not sort of translating out into the mainstream more. We're still like steeped in CBT therapy and all these cognitive therapies. And it's only half the puzzle because we have a whole body attached to our thinking brain. And when you leave it out of well-being uh, techniques and self-help strategies and therapeutic strategies, we're missing the boat and we're not healing the way we could be healing. Well, very good. Hillary, what's the best way for people to find out more about your work? Should they start with the book or what, you know, what do you suggest? Yeah, well, what I suggest is I have a ton of free resources that I create that are articles and videos on hillaryjacobshendel.com. And if people want to stay in touch, they can sign up for my email list and I send a new article that I write. Uh, sort of my claim to fame is that I write things very simply and accessibly. Um, and on the blogs, I have about 60 blog articles and they're all relevant. They're not they're, they're timeless and they're about different aspects of relationships and, and working with emotions and scenarios. And um, so that's a great place just to see what I'm doing. And then the book is great. And the, and a lot of, I know a lot of men, what I hear is a lot from my agent, a lot of there, people don't like to read so much anymore. So the book is on audio book, which is great because you can listen to it in the car. And the book is really just the whole enchilada. There's stories where you really get a feel for what this looks like in action because you can't think your way through an emotion. So when I was writing the book, it's like, how do I get people to understand the experience of an emotion while they're reading or listening to something? And it's really through the stories that it brings it to life. And then I have these gentle exercises at the end of each chapter. So you're working this change triangle tool, which is a self-help tool that we all need because we all have emotions, men, women, and every gender in between. So the book is another great way to get an education. And then I started teaching classes for the public. I teach something called Emotions Education 101. It's an eight-week class on Zoom. And it's just a gentle, experiential, educational course to, um, to, to, to practice this self-help tool called the Change Triangle. 
And then there's a Change Triangle YouTube channel where I have a, presentations and more experiential exercises and little experiments to try. And I'm just trying to like, whatever, just the, the whole trick is get a little, just learn a little bit about emotions enough to know whether, whether you wet your whistle to learn a little bit more. And then for most people, then it's, it's a lifelong process of just keep on working this change triangle and learning more about yourself and trying to be more authentic and learn ways to communicate authentically and lovingly and kindly with people so we can have a, a more empathic, compassionate, loving world. Less, tra- less trauma. Mm. Well, very good. Hillary, it's been a really cool talk. I learned a lot of things and uh, I appreciate you coming and, and thank you for what you do. Thanks, Richard. You asked fantastic questions and hello to, and goodbye to everybody out there. I'm so glad that you were listening today and take good care. If you like this podcast, please click the link in the description to subscribe and review us on iTunes. You've been listening to the Finding Genius Podcast with Richard Jacobs. If you like what you hear, be sure to review and subscribe to the Finding Genius Podcast on iTunes or wherever you listen to podcasts. And want to be smarter than everybody else? Become a premium member at FindingGeniusPodcast.com. This podcast is for information only. No advice of any kind is being given. Any action you take or don't take as a result of listening is your sole responsibility. Consult professionals when advice is needed.